You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our final week, Herds, mm. discussing the innocence of Father Brown. I have been the one in the solver's chair, and this is my last opportunity to walk away with points. You know, Father Brown has been an interesting collection the whole way through. We're covering the final three stories today, which is The Eye of Apollo, The Sign of the Broken Sword, and The Three Tools of Death. And I don't know about you, Herds, but I felt like there was a very distinct reason that you chose to give me the first of these three stories to solve. I mean, the thing is, right, when I read these stories, I figured I have to have you solve the hammer of God. I have to have you solve the invisible man, but what's the third story? And I kind of wanted to pick the three tools of death, but unfortunately the sign of the broken sword and the three tools of death, they kind of give away the ending very quickly. They're not very golden age in a sense. No, Well, the sign of the broken sword is, I mean, really, really fun. It's, it's like a little historical murder mystery. We're talking about the myth of this general who was, you know, hung by his enemy and the rest of his army was slaughtered in this massacre, but he's a, he's a genius general. So like, how would he have lost? It's this whole paradox that we're, you know, supposed to look through. But one of the very first lines that Father Brown has is, you know, how do you hide a pebble? Well, you hide it with other pebbles. How do you hide a leaf? You hide it with other leaves. And so obviously we're setting up the fact that one person's death is being hid with many other deaths. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling so, me that this military leader maybe... Uh, maybe caused some deaths. Maybe caused some deaths. To hide from? another death. Yeah. And, and it's sort of the same issue with the three tools of death in which even from the title, when I looked at the title, I went, oh, well, it's none of the three then. And even though these are not, you know, golden age murder mysteries are not part of that, that mythology, like we can use the tropes that we know to instantly solve what at the time of being written, I'm sure was very well, novel. But... I, I actually wonder about this you, because I get the feeling that across this entire collection, the game being given away in the title in sort of a weird way has been a, a bit of a constant. I feel like G.K. Chesterton is playing a bit of a game where rather than trying to create the most interesting puzzle, The Innocence of Father Brown is more trying to set up like, ooh, can you guess what this clever joke in the title is going to be? For example, in The Eye of Apollo, the trick is clearly going to be to do with eyes. You know, it's it's not going to be actually that we're being observed by the ancient sun god. Well, it's a joke, right? Like these titles, they're, they're like little little tricks, little hints, but they're also like jokes to the reader. Like, see if you can, you know, figure out the punchline before Father Brown delivers it in the last two pages of the novel. It, it's almost as though when you finish the stories and you go to someone else who's read the stories, you'll be like, ah, yes, the Eye of Apollo taps Ooh. nose. Mm, yes. The Eye of Apollo as a, as a story is is quite fun um, because... Similarly to the 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 myth of the general that we're exploring in the in the the, the point of the sword, the broken sword, we're exploring a, a cult, like a sun cult, effectively that's set up in this like office building, and that's what I actually really enjoy about these last couple of stories is that we are contrasting with the opener stories. We're moving more into the realm of myth and, and legend, which I think is really cool. The stories are becoming more abstract, and this is partly Father Brown trying to like one up himself, but it's also a way for him to expand on his like theological interests in talking about how myth is cultivated and what is a, a good myth as well, which is really, really cool, especially in the, the, the sign of the broken sword where father Brown decides not to expose the truth that he finds because 
he finds out, of course, that the general was a really bad man who killed someone, you know, yeah. shock horror. And he's looking at all of his, his graves. He goes on this, this pilgrimage, which again is tied to the mythic nature of the story yeah. where he's trying to figure out if any of the graves, any of the murals paint any of the other characters in the myth as being worse than they truly were. He doesn't care about this like wrongly propped up messianic figure of the general. Yes. He cares about tarring the image of the other characters in the myth. Yeah, there's also something very reminiscent of a critique here where there are plenty of murder mystery stories that have preceded this, some that we've read on the show, Pause for Effect, where we've sort of dealt with that whole idea of like pilgrimage and overseas war and the implications of death there. And Chesterton is kind of using Father Brown in that sense to look at the spiritual side of that, which I guess he feels has been underdone in previous reflections of this sort of theme, where we're not talking about the like meaning of what these generals have done overseas so much as that they just happen to be in an interesting location. The whole idea that Father Brown and Flambeau go on this this journey, it's kind of a core tenet of Father Brown's character that he is seeing the full story through the people he's investigating's eyes rather than just kind of putting the clues together. That, that point of going to great lengths as well, because obviously he he's always biting his nails and humming and hawing and looking stressed when he's like trying to figure out how keenly felt someone's sin is, right? So when the murderer does a sin, do they feel guilt? Do they try to put the blame on a madman so that no one will be harmed? That sort of thing. But in this story, we see a very physical manifestation of that attempt to understand because the person he's trying to understand is dead. He can't sit in the confessional with them and interrogate them. He has to physically go to these locations in order to satisfy his own sense of judgment on this person. If he doesn't go to the end of what evidence is attainable by his human body, then he doesn't feel like he's done a good enough job, right? Well, there's also this very interesting thing at the end of The Sign of the Broken Sword where they like return back to this this tavern at the end. They have a, have a little drink and Father Brown's giving his final thoughts on the thing. And it's this weird thing where it's like a, a return to home as well that gives them context. You know, there, there is that, that guidepost that Father Brown is always returning to. And for him, it is religion and this image of God and his connection with the common man. For Flambeau, I don't know. What is it for Flambeau? Well, Flambeau Because it's is, like evolving for him over the collection, right? Well, Flambeau's a funny one because he's he is that common man. Yes. He is that sinner that Father Brown has spent his whole life with, and he is teaching Flambeau. Right. And also because because we're Flambeau, don't you yes. get it? We're being taught by G.K. Chesterton. We've figured it out. We're being taught by G.K. Chesterton about the myths of the world and whether they're justified or not and the nature of sin, all this cool stuff in the same way that Flambeau is learning from Father Brown. And so for Flambeau, his closing thoughts of this story are around the sickens me. Yes. <laughs> the idea that this myth can still be perpetuated. We need to put a stop for it. But Father Brown says, well, if there's more good than bad that's come of it, because he ascertains, and this is the like, yeah. The twist of the story is that the other paradox is why did the general only hang one of the captives? Why did he only hang the opposing general? And the answer is because the other soldiers found out about the massacre being the general's fault. And so it's not just about like protecting the general, it's about protecting the lives of the people that have outlived him. And Father Brown sees that as more important, which is cool because Christianity deals a lot with like the letter of the law and how it should be applied. Famously, we went from the Ten Commandments down to the two, the edition of the of the New Testament, you know, 
Jesus says, love your neighbors and, mm-hmm. and respect God. That's, that's it. That's all you have to do, basically. I'm <laughs> paraphrasing. Christianity has, has an interesting relationship with the way that the law should be applied and what God wants versus what we think is true justice. I think there's also something really fun when we then jump between the broken sword and the three tools of death, where both of them are sort of talking about mistreatment of other cultures in a way, like wars on foreign land. And then there's also, what was the line, like his bland Mongolian visage or something towards the start of the three tools of death. Is that um, the manservant? Is that who you're talking yes. about? Because, yeah, he's talked to about, he, he's he's the Chinaman, he's the Noxian Chinaman, where he has a faint Eastern visage and he's like, got a, a very weird voice, but he has a strange sense of honor. He's, he's a whole bunch of tropes. He's treated relatively kindly, of course. He he stands up for what he believes in, which mm. is great. Well, but that's that's the thing is that like we have this this overseas war theme then jumping into the very direct like men mistreating their manservant from another culture. Like it, it feels to me like those two were put side by side on purpose, but it's really interesting to try and work out what G.K. Chesterton was actually trying to do with that. Yeah. I mean, the story of of the Three Tools of Death, to kind of lay it out, I guess, it's about a cheery man named Aaron, Aaron Armstrong, I think it is. And he's the happiest man alive, friendliest person you could ever meet. And the question is, of course, how could someone who has no enemies have been killed? And you're presented three equally likely ways that he could have been killed. It was his his wife with the knife. It was the manservant with the gun. It was maybe one of them with this noose that we found that he was hanging on to when he fell out of a, when he was murdered out of a window, supposedly. And of course the, the solution is around the mathematics of, of murder mystery where, well, you, you do have an additional suspect from those that are living. You also have the dead, which again, ties back to the story of the broken sword where just as you can judge someone's sin, you can, you can judge someone's state of mind when they passed. You can think about whether they really were as cheery as they seemed on the surface. And again, we're talking about, you know, peering through the lens of the deceased, of the murdered, and seeing why they have died, essentially. Yeah. I guess at that point, Herds, we should probably touch on the Eye of Apollo before we jump over into the mystery section. And I'm going to kind of try sum this up in as, as brief a line as I can. Good, good luck. I'm sure you have a witty one-liner. I'm ready for it. Well... I really can't see how I can Uh, sum this up too succinctly. Uh, There are definitely a few blind spots in my solution, but it it would be appalling for me to try and simplify things in just such a, you know, unobservant way. I, I like, I like where you're going. I have to ask because I appreciate all of the, the eye puns, but I need you to tell me who the criminal is in this scenario. I need you to tell me who has, whether directly or not, killed uh, Paul, Pauline Stacy. That's her name. I, remember, I, I totally knew that. <laughs> well, it has to be. It has to be her sister, right? It has to be Joan. So the way that the crime is done is confusing because what? There, 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 there are two main suspects, Joan and, and Kalon. Kalon. Worshipper of the sun, Kalon. And it's great. I think I think the tricky thing is is that Kalon has this entire imagery of like levitating above people. And it's clearly sort of a bit of a theatrics trick. He's got a little little elevator to to bring himself up. Well he well he even says that maybe Pauline like tried to levitate into the elevator shaft yeah. and just fell. <laughs> like because 
to, to be clear, the, the woman is found at the bottom of an elevator shaft and it's like, how did she get there? Who pushed her? But there's a secretary who assures us that both Joan and Kaylon were not in fact anywhere near her. They were up in the, yeah. the sun cult suite when she was found, when she died. Yes. We heard a crash and everything. Mm. So. Well, but I mean, the obvious thing there is that Kalon is basically telling us what he's done, which is that he's he's like made Pauline go to the lift and then because she, as you might have been able to tell from my collection of puns, is blind. What's crazy? Wandered into the, the now empty shaft where Kalon had been when he summoned her. Right, so Kalon is, is the killer then. Well, but the, the trick is this, is that both of them are sort of guilty in a way because Joan and Kalon both want the money that their family has, right? right. I, I don't know whether they're working together. I'm going to try and kind of put this one on, on myself on the spot. Good luck. But I think that they've killed her because they have somehow gotten her out of the out of the will, basically, is probably the most succinct way to put it. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I guess the fact that they're both blaming each other and the fact that Kalon points out that she like might have tried to levitate in the shaft makes me think that Kalon might have done it thinking he'd secured the money and not realize that Joan had an avenue as well. Do you think you might know there might there might be some clue in the story that could tell you how Joan might have an avenue while Kalon wouldn't? I will put the point on this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting the point on this. Oh Good God. luck. Because if you just say both suspects are guilty and leave it at that, I will be very Disappointed. That's that section where they're talking about how Pauline had to finish signing and it kind of parallels the whole idea where talking about the like conclusion. Yeah, it says uh, the oiled machinery, the like lift that he has was barely finished and understaffed. All of the devices in this story are unfinished. And so probably this legal document is too. Why would, why would it be unfinished? Joan was trying to what? <laughs> was she trying to get her to sign it first or second? Surely it'd be... I believe. I believe. Hold on. I believe. Hold on, Ben. What? Ben. What? Come on. Is it because she's blind, she cannot be a witness to a legal signature? Who's signing Flex? Joan doesn't want the money going to Kalon and has set it up so that she can get the money because her sister's blind, so she, she can't see what she's signing. Kalon thought he was going to get all the money... Joan had swapped out or rewritten the thing that Pauline was actually signing. Is that is that sort of what you're looking for? Yeah, I mean that seems fine. Okay, I can't tell you if I'm gonna give you a point for it or not. But no, like, no, please tell me and tell me in uh, a few minutes. <laughs> but you know the idea that we're gonna we're gonna pull the old switcheroo and then we'll reveal the real will later. Yeah, because they're both it. they're both working the same angle is what I was I guess trying to get towards all, earlier. Is that Joan and Kalon are both trying to do the same thing, but. Kalon goes for the whole theatrics nonsense because that's his entire ordeal. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like the idea that, yeah, the, the sun cultist is the theatrical one and the demure woman with the glasses is the more sort of surreptitious. And arguably effective one. Yeah, look, I like it, I like it. We'll, we'll have to see, I suppose, whether thematics and theatrics are enough to earn you a point. Indeed. Versus the physical I suppose situation. let's wrap this here. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Flex and Herds discussing the innocence of Father Brown all the way to the end of that collection. Stick around. More to come. You're on 2SER 107.3. Hi, this is Christine Gallagher from the Wide Open Air Exchange, reminding you that 2SER is a registered non-profit charity organisation. And if you're looking to make a tax-deductible donation before June 30, 
you can head to 2ser.com. Reduce your taxable income and support community radio. Thanks for your support. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our final minutes, Herds, discussing Uh-oh. the innocence of Father Brown after this G.K. Chesterton is done, removed from the records. We'll never speak of him again. We'll never see him in any other books. It won't happen. All right, Herds. I... We have to fight now. Here we go. Here, here we go. <laughs> I reckon I got all the points on that one. Did all the, you, All though? the point on that one. All the point. The thing she is... She was blind. Yeah. Her sister true. manipulated the writing of the will so that uh-huh. she couldn't see... Yes. What she was actually but signing or not signing. Here's the thing: I understand that they were both about the money. That that angle is correct. But your your assertion that they were both like using a similar strategy is is incorrect because she was not asking her sister to sign a different will. In fact, she right. she signed the actual will just with a pen that had no ink in it, uh-huh. which that that was the, 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 the physical scratchy, truth. Yes. Yeah, that's what the scratches on. I mean, look, you, you've read the story, so, you know, she, she left the scratches on the will because of the lack of ink in the pen. That's yeah. why the will is only half written rather than missing or You see, the thing I guess that confused me in another way. that Father Brown kind of writes out as like fate in the end, which I suppose I should have expected from Father Brown, is he's like, but as fate would have it, the fountain pen she thought was empty still had a tiny little bit of ink, so there's still a little bit of her signature. Well, that's not fate. That, that's her attempts at like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Pauline has some way of like feeling that there's ink in the pen. She, like, taps it in. So, I mean, this isn't expressed in the text, but, like, she can probably tell that there's a little bit in there, that there's enough to start writing in some way. I think the other thing that... enough to finish. The other thing that caught me up, which was really obvious in hindsight, was, of course, that because they were already related, Joan wouldn't yeah. need... That, that was my confusion, where you were saying, like, well, they're both after the money. And I'm like, but why would Joan have to ask for the money there's no drama there between the two of them i don't do wills professionally so in my mind i was like yeah we still need the the, the signed will to actually get the money to another person well this is the thing truthfully i feel like this was a reading comprehension failure rather than a mystery solving failure which is (laughs) does that mean i get the point um i i I, you know what i the thing is i feel like you did solve the oh, this, majority of the crime. This is a legalese so, failure, I would argue. Not even reading comprehension. It's a skill issue. Yeah, um, it's a skill issue. <laughs> skill issue. The theory was solid. No, I, I will give you the point. All I right, think that all right. that's perfectly fine. You did you did figure out that she was blind, and mm-hmm. that is the core mystery of, of mm-hmm. the story. Although, I will say, to kind of transition here into yes. the, the best part of the story... Father Brown amazes Flambeau by figuring all of this out and laying it out all out. And Flambeau says, you know, wow, it only took you 10 minutes to figure out that that Kalen was guilty. He's like, oh no. I, I figured that straight I away. I figured that out when he didn't react to the crash. Like that very first moment he sees a man with sin, a man with foreknowledge yes. and deduces that that man is, is a bad one. He's just not sure how yet, which is... Mwah. I love I love that he like solves the crime backwards. So good. I, I feel like that was probably the best I knew it all along solution we got from this collection. The, I think the best part is it's not I knew it like from the beginning of the story. Mm. You know, it's like I came to you to expose you because yeah. I know your secrets. Because that, that's a trope, right? That's a mm. trope in murder mystery where like the detective knew from the beginning who the bad guy was. That, that's also why this is the best I knew it all along solution. Is yes. Because it is him actually hunting it down yeah. rather than just kind of letting it happen. He, he figures out that there is a problem 
immediately through his intuition, through his understanding of the criminal mind, which is a you know a classic tactic in these stories. And from there, it's about extrapolation and rationalization of the facts, the fact being that Pauline was blind. Now that we've gotten to the end of this collection, Herds, you've heard my solutions for three of these stories. We've rambled about a lot of them. I guess since we're in the mystery section, comparing it to puzzles, golden ageiness. What do, what do you think this like kind of stacks up with? Because some stories one way, some stories the other. There's not like a huge. I don't feel like we're going to be saying anything bold by trying well, to boil it down. I mean, yeah, I mean, not all the stories are murder mysteries, and not all of them are 100% fair, right? Like, I mean, that's that's why I picked the Eye of Apollo for you to solve because I think that it is a fair-ish like murder mystery. So it, it's kind of difficult to compare it against people from the from the golden age because we're not looking at like a unified standard with these stories. It's a collection of ideas that G.K. Chesterton thought were interesting to think about and he wanted to put them into a story for people to read. It's a very freeing sort of approach, right? That he he's not trying to... I mean, there are authors that I'm sure inspired him and, and he was chasing, but like he's not chasing that golden age standard of fairness and rule following, you know, that we hold in such high regard. Thank you, Knox. Yeah, I mean... I could compare this to the three taps. I feel like that's like not a terrible stretch. Yeah. That I think about it. Well, I mean, it's like when we look at the collection as a whole, we have like what four or five impossible crimes. Mm. Like I guess you know we had the Invisible Man. I guess the Wrong Shape. The Wrong Shape is an impossible crime. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the thing is that they're all based in paradox, right? Like. The honor of Israel Gao is arguably an impossible crime because we just don't know what's been stolen. It's implied that the master of the castle in that story has been killed, but it turns out that that's just not the case. The guy who lives with him is a whack job. That's the real like, mystery there. The Wrong Shape is a true impossible murder. Even if it is very silly. Yes. The Hammer of God you could stretch as being an impossible crime, even though it's very... It doesn't it's dwell. Skewed, well, it's skewed along the lines of, like, gender comparison yeah. and the size of a hammer. Like, it is it is an impossible crime as it's presented, but it's mm. not, like, a proper locked room. Yeah. The Eye of Apollo is an impossible crime. Which which were the other ones, one of the ones that you thought were impossible crimes? Which ones do you think fall under that banner? Because I don't even think it's like it's more than like three. The Secret Garden, I think. So, oh yeah, the Secret. You know what? I'd forgotten about the Secret Garden. It's been a while. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. And and the Invisible Man. So the Secret Garden, the Invisible Man, uh, the Eye of Apollo, the Wrong Shape, and then maybe the Three Tools of Death. Hmm. Mm. Mm. So four. Yeah. Yeah, four. Four out of, like, 12 stories. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess that I've heard a lot about how Chesterton inspired people like Carr, who is the the master of the locked room impossible crime sort of thing, but there's not really a lot of it going on, and a lot of the ways that those rooms are locked are much more esoteric and interesting for how they're not impossible. We're about that theology, right? Like, we're, we're discussing modes of myth and, like, the efficacy of the ways that we try to approach myth and like the justification of its existence and all this cool stuff it's always like it's it's a very big brain sort of sort of <laughs> collection of stories is what i'm trying to say well the the other thing that's interesting about it is even though it always comes back to father brown's ability to relate to the common man and this sort of thesis that sin is transparent in a way sure. or sin, sin, sin is opaque i guess sin reveals itself yes, right yes 
it felt to me like there was actually a lot of nuance about having the same link each time. Like he did a good job making it feel as though that was a character trait of Father Brown rather than a cheap trick he was pulling over and over again, which I think is really down to the very interesting atmospheres that he creates down to the weird absurdities in every story. Mm. And also the, I think the fates of the characters that he exposes because he always shows to the reader the sin. He like solves the mystery, but like in the hammer of God, the villain turns himself in and in Prince Saradine, the villain gets away with it. And then in the eye of Apollo, I don't actually remember what happens. Do they just, he's just, he's, it just kind of ends. He's like, I reckon it was both of them. And then they disappear. Like we, we take Joan getting the money as like a positive resolution because she outsmart, she outsmarted the bad guy. Yeah. Well, she didn't, which is she strange. didn't kill anyone. She, she didn't. Well, I guess but she kind of knew he was going to kill her sister. I suppose so he, that's she's true. She's implicit in her murder. That's, that was the other thing that yes. I think tripped me up Yes, is that <laughs> I didn't feel like she should have known that that was going to happen. Well, that's the thing. She is implicit in the murder and yet Father Brown doesn't confront her. It's yeah. just kind of treated as like, isn't it tricky how they both did the crime and then we don't really confront anybody it's bizarre but yeah i i think that yeah that the fact that lots of different villains either get away with it or are redeemed or go to prison flambeau is the best example of course because he turns from being the villain of the first couple stories into the watson character like it's not just about Trixie catching the criminal aha i got you it's Father Brown has used his intuition and his detectiving to figure out what's going on. Yeah. What's he going to do with it? How's he going to respond? And how is this person going to respond based on the crime that they committed and their their wants and needs? I think the other thing that was really interesting is that so many of these assumptions about the way that sin presents itself and makes itself apparent make a lot of assumptions that I think have really held weight through history. Like the, the, they're sort of saying that the pattern here is in human nature, but there's so many other things through the story where there's a lot of assumptions that GK Chesterton is assuming we will make based on culture of his time. Like there's that line at the end of the eye of Apollo where they say, Oh yes. And the Stacy's were the sort of person to use a fountain pen. Yep. And maybe that's a thing that still exists today. I feel like, I feel like, weird nerds with collecting habits are the sorts of people who would use fountain pens these days. Correct me if I'm wrong, weird nerds with collecting habits. (laughs) Do use a fountain pen, please. Maybe. Email us. (laughs) Maybe Um, I do. Maybe you do. No, I I agree with that. I mean, I I definitely think that, like, there are are other clues you can use to kind of make that, that Mm. those assumptions, but... Well, the other one, the big one, was in The Honor of Israel Gao. There's a lot of things that were presumed to be gold. But we wouldn't know. Yeah, I wouldn't know they were gold. Yeah, like the fact that the uh, the Holy Cross was gold plated in the book that was ripped yeah. out, and the, the the like dust. I even remember what the dust was called, but the yeah. dust that is like, why would you keep this powder in the ground? Oh, it's supposed to be getting gold basins. Yeah, but at the same time, it, that kind of lends to that story's yeah, atmosphere. Yeah, you can sort like, of reverse engineer it because yeah. of the nature of the tale. So that one's not a big problem, but I definitely wonder how that would have felt back when it was written, Great as question. opposed to how it reads now. I wonder if people would have sold it immediately. Who knows, honestly? Mm. I suppose herds. All in all, I enjoyed Chesterton a lot, and I enjoyed Chesterton in a way that I really didn't think I would. I'd heard a lot worse things about Chesterton than ended up really coming to fruition here, and maybe that's from later collections. Are you talking about the anti-Semitism? Because there's, I mean, listen, there's a little that bit wasn't of that. Good. That wasn't, that wasn't good. <laughs> there's a little bit I'm of not, that. I'm not saying There are some, some noses described that. and some strange financial decisions being yeah. made. 
which is not great, but there's a, there's enough else going on in the story that I think a bunch of people who described Chesterton to me had only described that previously. Well, weirdly, it's it's more evident in like his opening stories, yeah. or like the first half of the stories. I feel like it gets better as it goes along, mm. which is which is always good. So I don't know, maybe maybe the next collection of stories is. Uh, a, a progressive set of tales. I'll, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll mayhaps, mayhaps. It's about time that we wrap up, and I tell you what you're reading next. What am I reading next? After what, by myself, many months. Yes. Is it happening? It's finally we're happening. finally taking flight on the winds. So, as it were. Months ago, we spoke with Brad Friedman of Our oh. Sweet Mystery and challenged him to solve the Millhouse murders by he's, Yukito Ayatsuji. He's been very quiet ever since. He's the, plotting. The second book in the Mansion Murder series. And and it got held up. It got held up because international release dates conspired against us. We thought that we were going to get to this as like our third book of the year. And then we found out the Australian release was later. Then we found out the US release was even later than mm. that. It's been fun, though, trying to, like, grab all the books to do in the meantime. Yeah. I really enjoyed this stretch. So we are finally making our way over to the second of the Mansion Murder series, Woo! The Millhouse Murders by Yukuto Ayatsuji. You will be reading Herds with Brad Friedman as his co-solver, chapters one to five. Yeah, I'm super ready to unmask the criminal. I want to let you know, Herds, that I'm think I knew the solution to this one before I opened the first page. What? That's wild. And I will explain myself in coming weeks. Okay, well, I'm excited to just not even figure it out. Just to be <laughs> like, I have no clue because the, the real answer was staring me in the face the whole time. That is a very effective pun. I know. I'm looking forward to collaborating with Brad. I think it'll be a good, good old time. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We will be back with the Millhouse Murders next week. Stay tuned. You're on 2SER 107.3.